Hi, this is Leah, a longtime listener from Cincinnati, Ohio. Things got a little heated on the Facebook page this week, so I'm here to remind you that when discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with your friends, it's best to start with a beer or a mixed drink, review all the latest drama in your lives, catch up on your favorite television shows, have another drink, eat a cheeseburger, remember why you are friends in the first place, talk about why people put leashes on cats, and then Google memes on the subject, Drink more and enjoy the weekend. Problem solved. Whether or not Mark, Liel, and Stephanie are attempting to walk a cat on a leash or facilitating a debate on the conflict in the Middle East, there's bound to be some swearing in this episode. This has been your obscenity warning. Um, this is embarrassing, but I took a taxi here and I stole it from another person, but I was there first, but she didn't know it. So a morning conversation. Of course you were there first. It's your taxi. It's your birthright. I don't live three blocks away. I live, I live, <laughs> Next time you write letters to my taxi. That's right. Your, your ancestors were there 4,000 years that's ago. That's right. <laughs> On the corner of Bleaker and... All right, we're ready. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, according to iTunes and to your mother who wants you to listen. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Hello. Hello. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And this week, Jew of the Week, Yossi Klein-Halevi, a big Jew. Big Jew. Big Jew. Major <laughs> major Jew. Big. What's really cool about him is that he's a, a pretty right-wing guy historically. I mean, he he comes out of the pretty hard right Betar movement. Uh, that basically wanted all of Israel, including what we call the occupied territories, basically wanted it all for the Jews. And after spending a lot of time with Palestinians, he basically went on this listening tour and realized that concessions had to be made. So the conclusions he's reached are the kind of things that get him hated on the right and the left, which, you know, in my book makes him pretty cool. Uh, his new book is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. And uh, our Gentile of the Week, our GOTW, our Jotua, is Osted Herndon, a recently minted political reporter for The New York Times. Not a Jew. Son of Christian preachers. Before we get to the Jew of the Week and the Gentile of the Week, let us deal with these three Jews of the Week. Leo, what is what is going on at uh, at Leibowitz Farms North? I have news. Yep, it's less about what's going on on the Upper West Side right now. It's more about what will take place on the Upper East Side, more specifically Fifth Avenue on June third, the Celebrate Israel Parade, which last week announced its honorary Grand Marshals. Who are they? They are Israeli celebrity chef Eyal Shani. Of unorthodox fame. Of unorthodox fame. Jonathan Lipnicki. Of, of Jerry Maguire Jerry fame. Jerry Maguire fame. The human head weighs eight pounds. Lipa Schmelzer of cosmopolitan, yeah. and, you know, Hasidic entertainment fame. And yours truly. Wow. You are a grand marshal? I am an honorary grand marshal. So you're the grand marshal of a parade. How does how does one prepare for, for such a, a monumental honor? There's a lot to learn uh, how to walk, how to wave, what to wear, what to do. And so I figured that because I take this honor very, very seriously, I would step out to Fifth Avenue for a Rocky-style training session with, with a person who knows. So we are here on... 72nd and 5th Avenue on a beautiful spring morning with Michael Miller, the CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council. Hello. Good morning. How are you? You're the boss of the parade. I don't know if I want to call myself that, but uh, we're kind of responsible and I happen to be the CEO of the organization. Now, personally, as, as a marcher, this is, uh, this is parade number what for you? 34. How has it changed over the years? It really has evolved. Um, it, at one time, was under the auspices of the American Zionist Youth Foundation, which was a part of the World Zionist Organization. So therefore, it was a youth parade, a predominantly youth parade. And it was overwhelmed with the beautiful sight of Jewish children marching up the avenue. We wanted this parade to be more reflective of the general Jewish community across the board. Uh, so it was not just uh, those pesky kids. <laughs> we love those kids. So we wanted the community to be uh, have the opportunity to march up the avenue and to have the same experience that their kids have. Um, and so we have organizations of all different sorts. We have non-Jewish groups that participate in the parade as well. So uh, despite the fact that, of course, in terms of numbers of marchers of the 40,000 marches, that's a real number. Yes, the vast majority of them will be children, but in terms of the groups that are represented, it represents a greater spectrum within the Jewish community. Now tell me, um, how, is the, how would you say the reception has changed? Because I think, you know, 
the way people, and, and this is granted a very specific city, it's New York, it's heavily Jewish, but I think overall the, the reactions and responses to Israel have shifted sort of wildly through the years. Do, do you feel a change in the vibe in how the parade has been recept, received by, by people like watching on the sidelines? Yeah, I, I think that um, thankfully, um, existentially, uh, Israel has not been under the same threat I'll, I'll qualify in a moment, um, as it was back in the very, very early days. And when Israel is not existentially threatened, of course it can be threatened by uh, non-existential threats, but I'm talking about the potential for, God forbid, the potential for annihilation. That's a big draw, uh, regrettably, but it is a big draw. Um, Anti-Semitism, of course, is always a, a big draw within the Jewish o always community. Always popular. Always very with popular. The kids, yeah. Yeah. Where would Jewish organizations be without anti-Semitism? Um, but uh, seriously, in, in this regard, uh, one essentially takes for granted that this parade is going to be happening, and why do I have to be there? Um, that really rubs uh, against my grain. Um, we have to be at this parade because we need Israel um, to uh, considering the, the emotions and support of Israel as a, a concept, we need to be out on the street to show our identification with Israel. You're saying um, don't 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 get too comfortable, don't get blasé. This is exactly. an important show of solidarity. Exactly, the parade is is uh, was there whenever it was established uh, 52 years ago. It was there, and if it is going to be there, we need to be out there in order to be supportive of it. The worst possible thing would be if the parade didn't happen in New York out of a lack of interest. A lack of interest in the state of Israel, here in New York, the largest Jewish community uh, in, in the world? So uh, Not on our watch. <laughs> not, on, not on JCRC's watch, that's for certain. And uh, together with our, our dear friends at the UJA Federation and many other organizations, of course, the government of Israel, the consulate, uh, we, we work virtually all year on this, to try to make this parade um, as beautiful as possible, as celebratory as possible, to attract as many people as possible up this avenue. How do we, how do we, watch, how do we get there? Go to CelebrateIsraelNY.org, see all the specifics, come see us. Uh, it will be amazing. Top well, that, Bosnik. Stephanie, can you top that? No. I mean, what's going how, can on? What? I, how can I top that? I'm not the grand marshal of anything. Anything going on in your life? But I have to can... say that my dad, when my college graduation, my dad borrowed one of those like things that said grand marshal from someone who was a grand marshal and just wore it around the whole week. So <laughs> I actually I come from a long lineage uh, of grand marshals. Grand marshals. Some of my best friends. Parade crashers. Um, yeah, I have I have nothing like that. I'll just say as we as we cruise out of the Omer now that we have post traveled, Omer post Omer bye now that we have traveled from um Passover from Massa from, from Passover to Shavuot to the, the fifty days during which we count the Omer, which we've mentioned more on this show this year. I think like, we've given it a lot of play. There are any other. I'm done. Ever of thousands thousands by the way, Liel has shaved his beard because the Omer's because over. The Omer's over. That's correct. I just I want to I want to be serious for a moment and say that you know I'm not a super observant guy. Like once in a while, I will add a ritual to my life, and this was the year I wanted to actually just count the Omer with my kids. Like every night, I just wanted to say when I kissed them goodnight and you know read them a story. Sometimes I say the Shema. Sometimes I don't. I wanted to like be like Rebecca, Ellie, Clara, and thirty seventh night of the Omer. Boom. Next night, thirty. Uh, and I, I love you. It's the forty forty third six, right? And I didn't. And I just, you know, just every night I forget. You forget. It's like bringing the recyclable bags to the supermarket. You just forget every time. And every time you say, "I'm going to do it next time." Next year in Omer, I kind Rusalem? of just, I just want to do Omer, and then I want to do Shavuot. I want, I want like do the Omer, and then cheesecake, or I'll go to synagogue on Shavuot. I've never done Shavuot in any way, shape, or form. But I have a very sweet story here, and I, you know. I try to I try to parcel out the daughter stories, you know, judiciously because because there's so many of them. Because there's so many, and not everyone thinks other people's kids are that interesting, um, including me. I don't think other people's kids are that interesting. Um, but a few nights ago, maybe it was Erev Shavuot or something, and I was lying in bed with Anna, and I was saying goodnight to her, and I just said, you know, okay, goodnight, sweetie, and I said, oh, and happy happy Shavuos, and um, and she said, Daddy, and I said, yes, sweetheart. She's this four-year-old Anna. She said, I want to meet him. And I said, who? And she said, the one who got the commandments, Moses. And I was like, babe, he's, he, you know, he's, he's dead. 
<laughs> and she said, yeah, no, I, I know, but I just, can I meet him someday? And at which point, which is a deep theological question, it's like, sure, when, when we're all risen, like, sure. Well, the correct answer is like, Anna, you already have because we were all at Sinai. I guess. Moses but that's, was in you all along. Don't you remember? It's just really deep, deep stuff. It's like either we were all, all Jews were at Sinai then, or he's always with us in some sense. Uh, or it's like, sure, when the resurrection comes, if you've been written in the book of life, if you're among the resurrected, like, sure, we can like have a smoothie with him then. It's, what do you say when the daughter says, let's meet like, Moses? Well, I can't do Moses, but I can do Michael Cohen. <laughs> right? <laughs> do you want to meet him? Maybe it's I It's going to cost you. Maybe I can do Jonathan Lipnicki. Liao will hook you up. If you've seen Jonathan Lipnicki. Yeah, she would days. love to. Um, News of the Jews. Stephanie. I got a good one. What this you week. got? So, you know, athletes and celebrities buy houses. And they they're do. like, I have a bowling alley. I have an indoor pool. I have a helicopter landing yeah, pad. Yeah, like they just get houses that just have like crazy stuff in them. Well, okay, here's my official favorite athlete buying crazy house story of all time. Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver, Antonio Brown. That is a sentence I never thought I would say. Waiting for the Jew in this. He bought a $6 million home in Fort Lauderdale that came with a synagogue in it. And the reason we know this is because he went on complex closets, which is complex. Like they they go into celebrities' closets and they look at all their shoes and stuff like that. And they're showing his house and he just like legit has a synagogue in his house. (laughs) And... They, they sort of bring it up. They're like, you know, hey, man, like you have a synagogue in here. And he's like, I got a lot of Jewish friends and this is where you bless up. That is what he said. So, like, can you imagine this a non-Jewish athlete, non-Jewish celebrity? <laughs> and so oh the best God. thing is, so the home was actually like built by this like Israeli real estate mocker. And then like one of the chairs in the synagogue says like Yitzhak on the back. Like it's, he, it has Hebrew lettering. Like he just left it, left by the it way, as is. This is how you know uh, it's a Gentile who bought the house because a Jew would have erected two synagogues. There's like the reform he never goes to. And then the conservative one that he frequents. But can you imagine just like, um, can you imagine just having such an uncomplicated relationship? Like, with Judaism? With Judaism, you're like, I'm like, what's up, man? What's wrong with you? So like, basically, like before he he laces up for to or to fly off for a game, he just he can go sit in Yitzhak's chair. Yeah, and just, just, just bless up, bless up. And you, there's the pool, there's a the mikvah, right? <laughs> I mean, we've all heard about the the um you know the people who buy houses that have mezuzah on them. And they leave the mezuzah there. We've known maybe some of you've been in the homes of Gentile friends, and there's a mezuzah on the door, and they just had a sense like when they moved in, they knew it was something special. They leave it up. And Jews are supposed to leave the mezuzah behind. When really? They, when, yeah, yeah. Isn't that right? When, they, yeah. when we move out, we're supposed to leave the mezuzah behind. This is just a whole other level. It's like build like a shul, that. leave it behind. Leave it behind. Leave it behind. The wide receiver will move it to the shul. Uh, really? But if you really are serious, you should, you should really build a temple. <laughs> Liel. Here's Ben Hamikdash in our backyard. Liel, any news the Jews to top yes, that? Yes, I, I, absolutely. Even more important. Spiritually? No. no. Even more important okay. than having a shul in your home is having what a grand big new mall in Miami will very soon have. What's that? America's very first kosher Burger King. Dude. What? Look at that. Dude. What Isn't does that mean? that amazing? So what does a kosher it, Burger King entail? It means we have them in Israel. We also have a McDonald's HaKashir. I'm more into Burgerim. Uh, Burgerim <laughs> is also very good. But seriously, this would be a Burger King where the meat is kosher, where cheeseburgers are not on the menu, uh, where people like me could go in and enjoy our favorite treats, like Whopper. And, and here's the thing that like Whopper really... <laughs> said like a truth, oh, really. No, but I can eat Whopper. <laughs> I can eat a Whopper. That's freaking amazing. And and this really kind of emotionally and spiritually resonates with me because when you go kosher, as I did, you know, about a year and a half ago now, um, there are a lot of things that you could still get. Like you could still get a good steak, still get a like burgers, like all of that is. Right, you give up bacon, you give up shrimp, but like you could sort of live life more or less like you did. But then there's this huge gap, right? This huge black hole because I used to eat a lot of junk food and I kind of like there's it. There's like a drive-through size and hole in your heart. There's a drive-through size hole in my heart. You can't get So we'll go to Miami. Will someone flavor. go to Miami? Someone check it out. Next Let time we vi- next time we visit Kennebunk South in Florida for for a field trip. And we, we will can go, go to Antonio to that. Brown's house. And that's in Fort we will Dovin at Antonio we Brown's house. We will begin with a with a <laughs> at Antonio's house, and then we would and just then a breakfast drive. sandwich. What we'll do you go got, to the Mark? breakfast what sandwich. I okay. So this is really embarrassing. So I was looking around. I was like, I know that Stephanie's got the shul in the house, and Liel's got the Burger King in the mall. And what can I do to top that? So I'm I'm cruising around the web, and I found this great story. A, I'll just read the beginning of it, right? This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. A Chicago woman who let loose a pack of mice, which nearly panicked elderly women attending a meeting, 
called by the National Committee Against Nazism and Nazi Criminals, was booked for trial here next Tuesday on disorderly conduct charges. Okay, so this is a story about a, a Chicago meeting of of anti-fascists, and there's this like fascist sympathizer who lets loose a bunch of mice that scares all the old people to death. Uh, the woman was identified as a member of a group of 200 Latvian, Estonian, and Lithuanian emigres calling themselves the Anti-Bolshevik Action Committee, and they picketed the anti-Nazi meeting, muttering anti-Jewish imprecations as they marched. So, Marcus, you're thinking Antifa, Charlottesville. Antifa, Charlottesville, BDS, Gaza, uh, Oberlin. Mouseketeers. Mouseketeers, Oberlin College. Like, I am thinking the whole panoply, right? Then I notice it's an archival story from 1963. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? You fell for the, like, on this day, I fell for the, on this day, May 30th, 1963 blog post. And yet, I feel oddly still relevant. (laughs) And yet, this story could have happened yesterday. This story has everything. No, the the things, the, like, anti-Bolshevik thing kind of got me, because I'm like, what kind of groups are, like, they're still... Oh, come on. Oh, I bet you they're, like, 17 anti-Bolshevik groups. This is all intellectual dark web. It does remind me of the, like, the scene from The Witches, witches, the Roald Dahl book, where they, like, the witches have their meeting, and then they let in all the mice. Anyway, it's like, it's like Mouse, right? Anyway. It's the original, the original plot line of Mouse. Exactly. And the other thing is, this has just opened up a whole new news of the Jews angle, which is, I thought, well, shoot, for three years, I've been looking for actual news of the Jews, like new items. Yeah, why does it have to be new? Fuck it's that. Like, I'm just going to find interesting I- items from the history of... Right, also, people don't really necessarily listen the same week <laughs> that the podcast goes up. Yeah. Let's just go... This is for the binge listeners. Eight months from now, it might as well be 1963. And so let me share the good news that uh, I.B. Singer won the Nobel Prize. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Jews are always winning those. Right. Uh, so pre- maybe- President Kennedy is thriving. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Way too soon. Anyway, uh, happy 1963 to you all. It's the 32nd day of the Omer. Our Jewish guest this week is Yossi Klein-Halevi. He's a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, and he is the author of a brand new book called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Yossi, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. And I will say that he's also the answer most of our listeners gave to. Who would you really like to see on the podcast? Someone wrote on our Facebook group, your your goal for the summer should be getting Yossi Klein-Halevi on. And I, was I, like, wrote, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> I was like, well, hopefully it doesn't take the whole summer. Otherwise, we have no poll in this that world. YKHalevi23 at Hotmail.com. So, so the book just came out, and it's you know obviously a, a pretty timely topic. I mean, it always is, but especially now. And the interesting thing is that it's framed as, you know, like the title says, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Why did you go with that that structure? And then also, why not just talk to a Palestinian neighbor? What's sort of what, what, right. no, what was the device, the right. rhetorical device? Right. And then... So, so the book uh, begins really with a previous book uh, called At the Entrance to the Garden of Eden, which is a story of uh, an account of a journey that I took in Palestinian society in the late 1990s. Uh, And that was an attempt to listen to my Palestinian neighbors, to learn their narrative, to hear their stories. And I read Palestinian uh, histories, poetry. I I immersed myself in the Palestinian narrative. And I did that for about a year. And uh, the book was published uh, uh, and coincided with two uh, inauspicious uh, moments. Uh, the actual pub date was September 11, 2001, uh, which is one reason why many people, I think, never heard of the book. Uh, and the second uh, convergence was uh, with the Second Intifada, uh, and when buses were blowing up uh, um, every other day in, uh, in Israel. And so that book really died. It died for me. And it came out in the worst possible time when I felt I, I had exhausted my capacity for outreach. My conversation with my Palestinian neighbors was revived uh, thanks to a program that uh, I've been involved in at Hartman for the last six years, uh, which is called the Muslim Leadership Initiative, where we teach about Israel and Judaism and Zionism to uh, American Muslim leaders, young, emerging American Muslim leaders. And thanks to those experiences and conversations, I, I began to reconnect emotionally with my Palestinian neighbors. And, and in terms of uh, why I didn't write to an actual neighbor, I think there, were, there are two reasons for that. Uh, one is because uh, it, it felt 
to find a Palestinian that I could that I could write to uh, felt dishonest. It 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 felt like it was not um, reflective of this of this moment. There is almost a complete cutoff between Israelis and Palestinians, which was not true twenty years ago when I went on this journey uh, into into Palestinian society. And um, today, look, I I live at the very edge of of French Hill in Jerusalem. Right outside my window, literally outside my window, is the wall. That wall is is both a metaphor and as concrete as 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 a wall can be. And so I don't have an interlocutor that I felt uh, that I could really write to. And the second, I would say, deeper reason is that I felt that my story, my my narrative, my people's narrative, is being gradually erased in uh, in the current discourse. And there was a time when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s in, in the U.S. Uh, when uh, the Palestinian narrative went virtually unheard. Today, the, the roles have, have uh, almost switched, and it's increasingly hard uh, for an Israeli to convey our story. And so I wanted to write a book that tells who I am, what my people's story is, why I'm living on this hill across from my Palestinian neighbor, and uh, and invite a conversation. So I see this book really as an opening uh, to a conversation rather than as a, a manifesto. So if I had to sum up the argument, and I'm going to tell you how I would sum it up, you tell me if I'm right. It's it's, it's written as nine, is it nine letters? to ten, ten letters to a hypothetical Palestinian neighbor from, you know, an American Zionist who made Aliyah in, when did you move there? 1982. 1982. Uh, it was a fine year, by the way. Nothing, nothing bad happened. Right, no, 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 no. Went right, you right really into pick, the first Lebanon war. You really picked your times. <laughs> I would sum it up as, and I'm again, I'm smushing together ten mm-hmm. letters that I read a week ago. As um, right now, people are hearing a lot about Palestinians' history on the land, mm-hmm. but my people have a history on the land too. Yes. And 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 the way to measure who it, it's a fool's errand to say, well, you have more history and I have less history, or well, you were displaced this year, therefore. You know, uh, you know, or, or you can point to your house. Therefore, your history matters more. That in fact, like we both have this very, very long history, and right now, Americans and and the left are basically putting the Palestinian history first, and they should be on equal footing in people's minds as they try to figure this out. Look, is I, that is that a fair? Almost. Okay, almost. almost. So tell me how that's not fair. <clears throat> You're so close. Okay. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm not a. Um, a neutral observer here. I'm a protagonist. I believe that my people's 4,000-year story uh, is uh, is the most powerful attachment to this land. Uh, there never was uh, any other people that managed to create uh, a, a state in the 2,000 years of, uh, of our absence from the land. So that's my narrative. I believe that this land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea belongs to my people. But that's my starting point. That's not my end point. My end point is there's a rival claimant in this land who believes that they have a stronger claim. Now, we will disagree about that. But if we're going to share this land, and I believe that we have no choice but to share this land, partition has been on the table almost from the beginning of this conflict. Neither side wants partition. I don't want it. I I hate partition. I hate the thought of dragging my fellow... Israelis out of homes that they built, that uh, that their children were born in, that we have as much a right to, in principle, as uh, as Tel Aviv, maybe more, maybe maybe we have we have a deeper claim to uh, to Judea and Samaria, and for me it's Judea and Samaria. It is not occupied territory. It isn't even the West Bank, but for my Palestinian neighbor, all of this land between the river and the sea is Palestine, including what including what is now the state of Israel. I have to come to terms with that. And my neighbor has to come to terms with my claim. And so reluctantly, painfully, the only alternative that I see to another hundred years of war is the alternative that both sides don't want, which is partition. Now, could you explain what partition would be for our listeners who aren't as familiar with this? Well, it means cutting up this little land into two states. And um, and there there's very good reason why both sides don't want to do that because 
I would experience partition as a kind of amputation, a, a, a physical violation of my, of my wholeness, of, of, my, of my claim. But my neighbor would experience partition in the same way, and that makes us potential partners in a very traumatic process. And one of the things you seem to be saying also is, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm reading with my own history of, of, you know, trying to figure out what I think. One of the things you seem to be saying is each side has to stop calling the other side a liar. In other words, exactly. in other words, you know, that email we get from our elderly relatives, I, I always make them elderly relatives, but in my case, like, that, that's like, that's like, here are a hundred lies that Palestinians, there is no Palestinian people. Yes. They never even said Palestinian until 1993. They don't, basically, they've invented this history that you're saying like, that's not helpful because Listen, they're telling the truth about their narrative. They're telling yes, that yes, that is authentically yes, yes. how they feel. And, 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 and similarly, Palestinians have to stop saying there was no Holocaust and Jews were never here and they're descended from the Khazars and they're, they're Listen, Basically, like we have to stop calling each other liars. Each side is telling the truth about their attachment to the land. Do me a favor and tell your elderly relative to stop writing me on Facebook. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I am getting inundated with emails that say either letters to a, quote, Palestinian neighbor. That's one side of it. And the other is, uh, quote, letters. No. <laughs> the hardest thing for a writer no, to no, get. No, it's, quote, uh, neighbor. neighbor. You know, right. you call, I, literally so, you call yourself my neighbor. You're not my neighbor. You're a Khazar Zionist Nazi, and you are going to die. Those are the two uh, extremes, and right. they're and I'm getting a lot of those kinds of letters. And in between, so the, two and know, uh are the only non-controversial <laughs> words in your book's title. <laughs> but uh, I'm getting uh, <clears throat> at the same time some uh, very uh, interesting responses from Palestinians. Uh, we translated the the letters into Arabic. Right, downloadable for free Down, in Arabic. Downloadable right? for free. And Anyone people, who wants to save 1995 or just go learn Arabic. Just spend some years learn Arabic. Right. And, <laughs> and Yossi's book is free. That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the responses that I'm beginning to get from Palestinians and some people in the Middle East generally uh, range from uh, the genocidal to the curious to the grateful. And uh, I've been invited now for coffee to Janine, to uh, uh, Nablus, uh, Jerus East Jerusalem. Now, if you just get invited to the Park Slope Food Co-op, we'll know that. <laughs> well, that that was exactly going to be my 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 question because it, it seems to me that you know while letters to a Palestinian neighbor is is a is a very good conceit and it's it's obviously very true. There's kind of a, a second hidden and equally important layer to the book, which is communicating. Uh, basically, as you said, our narrative or or a version of 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 the kind of Zionist narrative to uh, let's say many American Jews for whom this is both unknown and perhaps potentially unappealing, and maybe they'll be uh, more likely to read it or listen to it if it's presented as a kind of a part in a dialogue with the other side. D do you feel that way? Yeah, I'm 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 hoping the book will trigger multiple parallel conversations. Uh, the primary audience, of course, are Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims generally. The next audience are are American Jews. That's that's clear, and I hope this will trigger a conversation among American Jews between the left and the right in this country, because I I feel that that conversation has become so sterile, so predictable, and so boring that uh, maybe this book can can give people on both left and right uh, a new language. I'm hoping that, well, I would say that what I try to do in this book is, is stretch my capacity for empathy with the Palestinians while maintaining the integrity of our story. And I'm hoping that the empathy for the Palestinians will challenge the Jewish right and the non-apologetic integrity of the Jewish and Israeli story will challenge the, the Jewish left. And, uh, you know, we, we tend to speak about the Palestinians in one of two ways, either uh, with anger, how could you have done this and you rejected this deal and that deal, or we bend over with, with apology. Those are the two Jewish modes of, of these days of speaking to the Palestinians. And both of them are silly. The Palestinians. Both of them are, are dead ends. 
And so what I've tried to do in this book- I feel like that's book, how I talk to my children. I'm sorry, that just reminds me. Like, either I'm screaming at them- Or I'm so sorry. Or I'm so sorry I screamed at them. <laughs> the, uh, what, took, what took a while with this book was to get the tone right. Because I kept veering between anger and apology. I would start yelling at this, at this imaginary Palestinian neighbor who can't even respond, and then start feeling guilty and start apologizing. And I realized finally that, that neither of those uh, approaches are really useful. And so in the end, um, I, I, tell, I tell my Palestinian neighbor, whatever your story is, is your story. And I'm not here to try to erase your story or convince you that my story is right. And this goes back to what you were saying, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm not here to compete with your story. This is my story. This is who I am. And I'm ready to listen to your story and respect who you are. Now, that same dynamic, I hope, can, can play out uh, among American Jews. Look, a lot of my, most of my professional work is actually directed toward the American Jewish community. I, I sit at the Hartman Institute, and, and I'm part of a, a, a program there called I Engage, where we, we create a curricula for American Jews on Israel, how to speak about Israel, not as a political argument, but as a values, a shared values conversation among Jews of different political persuasions. And I've been part of that Hartman seminar for the last eight years. And I would say that much of the language of this book comes out of both I Engage uh, and the Muslim Leadership Initiative, uh, MLI, the project that I directed Hartman with with uh, Imam Abdullah Antepli of uh, Duke University. Duke's first Muslim chaplain. He got he got there my senior year. He was your, oh, you, uh, your imam. You were, yeah. Oh, no kidding. We were like one of the first three schools to get a Muslim chaplain. It was really, he's well, amazing. Abdullah is my, my partner, my brother. I dedicated the book to him. And uh, this book would not exist without Abdullah. And so how do you strike, uh, by the way, I was about to say, so your job basically stuck about Israel too. Muslims and American Jews, the fact that you're not drinking right now, and Israelis, like, <laughs> the fact that there's not vodka in your teacup is astonishing. How do you strike, though, that that uh, tone? Because, you know, a, a lot of us who professionally are responsible for talking about Israel or writing about Israel, I think, struggle with the same kind of tone issue very frequently. Um, I, I know you, you yourself you know, meditate and, and are a, a very mindful human being. This question's going to have you... an ad for transcendental meditation, which is Liel's latest how do you, snake oil. How do you... Uh, there's so much love in this room right now. How do you strike uh, that tone, though? Because you said all these false starts, and, and, and I can't imagine, you know, sitting there looking at the wall, reading the news in Israel, which have not been, you know, the most cheerful in the last couple of years. How do you get to that emotional zone? Look, I am a meditator. I'm part of a meditation circle that I'm out of here for the last uh, <laughs> I'm out peace well, out it's been real been okay. for the last 35 <laughs> years that's uh, we do uh, Jewish meditation we do a Kabbalistic form of meditation and we, we actually have a center in Jerusalem Mark by the way will accept and, uh, the Palestinian narrative before he accepts the meditation <laughs> that's narrative that's basically right that's, 100% I, yeah. so yeah that's 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 I, I I hope that that's part of it but you know Liel I I I go through all of the, the rage and frustration that any of us do, whatever our politics are, and uh, I just try not to let that enter into the final draft. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and, and I try to, to confine that what, I, uh, what I think and feel uh, in, 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 um, in my darker moments uh, should, stay, should stay with me. And uh, I, I feel that, that those of us who... Who um, who intrude on the public space and 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 are are vying for people's attention have a a responsibility to uh, to try to bring to the public space uh, something other than our venting because uh, today that basically defines much of uh, the public space. And so, what has the last week been like for you? It's been a singularly loaded. Oh, wow. With many intrusions made on the public space, with wow. all kinds of raging opinions left and right, what what has it been like reading about Gaza? Well, first of all, it's been reading about Gaza. It's been sitting here in uh, in in the U.S. and uh, vicariously experiencing what's happening in Israel, and feeling completely disoriented to to be here when uh, Israel is convulsing is. Um, 
is very difficult because um, I'm I'm surrounded by people who care. They do care, but it's one of the things they care about. And and to be an Israeli at a moment of crisis uh, is to be completely immersed in in that story and to feel very alone when you're not when you're not in Israel. So that's that's one part of this. Uh, the other part, quite honestly, has been trying to figure out what do I have to say about this to American audiences? What do I have to say about Gaza at this moment? And I'm very torn because uh, on the one hand, my, my instinct, it's, it's more than an instinct, it's, it's, it's a need, uh, is to defend Israel and say, wait a minute, you're getting the story wrong again. You're leaving out crucial pieces of this story. Uh, these weren't peaceful demonstrators. Uh, the Israeli army was not indiscriminately firing. Uh, there's the, 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 whole, the whole dynamic, as you've described it, is actually distorted. So, so there's this deep need that I have to, to try to, to, to speak truth about, about, as I see it, about what's happened here. Uh, at the same time, my Muslim friends uh, who uh, spent a year as part of our Hartman program, immersing in studying Judaism and Israel, are very angry at me. They're saying, where's your compassion for what the Palestinians are going through? Uh, why, why is it always Israeli security and, and never acknowledging the, the suffering, the frustration, the, the, the agony of the Palestinians? And, and I'm trying to hear that. But again, when you're under dual assault, because Israel has been under, under concentric circles of siege in the last couple of weeks. The first is, 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 um, is Gaza, or the, the Iranians in Syria, this feeling of our borders coming in. We have, we have terror enclaves on almost every border. There's no country in the world that faces the kinds of security threats that we face on, a, on an hourly basis. And then on top of that, there's the outer siege of the international community just pointing its finger at Israel. And I'm saying to myself, how is it possible that Israel, the state of Israel, is losing the propaganda war to Hamas, to a genocidal organization? And so there's this, this rage that I'm feeling. And when you're in that state, it's very hard to be empathic. But I've just written this damn book, <laughs> and I, you know, and and I have to own it. I really have to own this book, and that's my own internal struggle of these last days. How do I defend Israel? Defend what I believe is 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 true, and at the same time, be mindful of the fact that I've now embarked on a on a journey, and and I'm starting to get responses from Palestinians, and I have to own that. It also sounds like that mode of dialogue, both that the book you know hints at, and and also that you have cultivated in in your own work at the center, um, makes it difficult, right, to to sink into kind of like one monolithic point of view because you now have real friends, yes, uh, who are who are Muslim or Palestinians or Arab who have very different points of view, and you can't just come and say to your actual live human friends, not abstractions. Hey, you know, buzz off. I feel what I feel. You have to take that into consideration. It's even deeper than that. I have moral, I have partners in a shared morality among people whose politics I deeply disagree with. We are we are partners in trying to create a new spiritual space. And that's what that's what our project with with the, the Muslim Leadership Initiative really is about. And how do we stand in a place where we profoundly disagree, not only about opinions, but about facts, which seems to be the, the, uh, the prevailing ethos these days. You, you can't agree on facts. And these last weeks are, are a classic example of that. I'm seeing one set of facts, and my, my Muslim friends are seeing a whole different set of facts. How do we stand together in that place of shared moral value when, when I'm saying, wait a minute, your side is, is threatening the lives of my children. And they're saying, well, wait a minute, your side is indiscriminately killing our co-religionists. But to me, the power imbalance seems so important here, right? Like, yes, I, I do understand that Hamas was behind a lot of a lot of the protests and that there was it's been misinterpreted and misportrayed by the media. But I, I do feel like 
there's a lot, there's just an imbalance of power. And so, yes, I'm I'm on board with this, but it seems like with this latest flare up, the, it's really hard to for, to imagine a Palestinian listening because right. Right. because of just the just the conditions of Gaza, Gaza, and even if you are being manipulated by Hamas, whatever, it's sort of just it's it's to see that to see humans in those conditions is really difficult for me as a as a Jewish person who feels a really really deep connection to Israel. And I think that that one has to really speak from that place as well. And the challenge for me personally, but I think for us as a people, is how do we speak from the place of this is our story. This is our, these are our security needs. And at the same time, there's a, there's a, another people here that has been shattered and shattered as a consequence, not intentionally, but nevertheless, as a consequence of my return home. And I have to come to terms with that. I sometimes feel that what American, like political Zionists, sort of right-leaning Zionists ask of me is to not be empathetic sometimes. In other words, you see these, you know, 50 or so people getting shot where they shot because Hamas drove them to the wall and said, oh, it's open. You can run through now. It's like Berlin. Or were they shot because they were Hamas operatives themselves? I don't know. Right. But then you see, you know, and then you see the families wailing and whatever. And there's a certain kind of American Zionist response that says we're liberals on everything and we feel for every poor person in every city in America. But when you see that, remember, those aren't human beings who were killed. Those are Hamas operatives. And don't ask me to be sympathetic. They, there's a there's a, a way in which the American Zionist narrative says, in addition to subscribing to a certain political program, which a lot of you would be on board, we also will not allow public displays of saying this is heartbreaking. Those were real lives, even if they were misguided lives in the cases of some. And it seems to me is that and yeah, of course Israelis do that too is that that's like a necessary thing to yes. live in that narrative isn't it is yes. sometimes we're just going to say we can't care that much don't ask me to care which strikes me as i mean i can't tell my kids don't care those are hamas operatives no i think that that there's a dysfunctional conversation about israel that's happening uh, on the left and the right in this country and in israel uh, it's there's a different dynamic which but uh, here uh, the the you're right. The the there's there's almost something treasonous about ex, about expressing uh, empathy for for Palestinian suffering for many on the right, and that's the pushback that I've been getting. Uh, you know, I I've sold out. Look, I I come from the right. I grew up in the right. That's that's my background, and emotionally, uh, I'll probably always still be there. You know, when I was a teenager, I wore uh, the uh, the Stegadot uh, emblem around my neck. Stegadot means both banks of the River Jordan. I was in the in the right wing nationalist uh, Beitar youth movement. You know, the West Bank wasn't enough for us. It was also the Kingdom of Jordan that belonged to us. So emotionally, I'm there, uh, and so for me to have come from the right and to be expressing any empathy for Palestinians is uh, is 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 a kind of betrayal. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I would push back at what you said and, and challenge you and say, well, wait a minute. It does matter if 50 out of the 62 people who were killed last week uh, were Hamas operatives by Hamas's own, own admission or boast. Uh, I think that really does matter in terms of the narrative, not, not in terms of saying, well, wait a minute, uh, any, any sympathy for the Palestinians is beyond the pale, because what did drive tens of thousands of people? To be to be charging the fence, and I think it's a mixture of desperation. Yeah, but the mindset extends and, to and and just I, yeah. I think it's a mixture of desperation and a kind of poisoned maximalist politics, where where that let's take the word return seriously, and and the question that I have for Gaza is return from where to where? Isn't Gaza Palestine? Why are there refugee camps? In, in Gaza. Is, is there any other place in the world where there are refugee camps in your own country with people saying, we're, we're, we don't want to stay here, we want to go to another country? The state of Israel is another country. It is not Palestine anymore. And, and so Palestinians need to be called on that. And left-wing Jews need to have a little more backbone and stand up and, and, and push back at some of the more problematic Palestinian claims without seeding human empathy or 
challenges to 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 Israel's uh, uh, political rigidity, you know, and uh, and and this is also and you know this this notion that it's all on the Palestinians uh, is 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 a and and I was and I was very much in that camp. But it is evading our own responsibility. And our own responsibility, it's not only moral responsibility. The premise of Zionism was self-empowerment. And there's something in our relationship to this conflict where we say we have no agency. But meanwhile, we're building in settlements. We're expanding our, our, our footprint uh, in Judea and Samaria. And so even though it is Judea and Samaria for me emotionally, it cannot be the state of Israel politically. So, yes, we have to let you go soon, but I want to know what your message is for a young left-leaning Jew who doesn't really know how to feel about this and who sees what's going on and maybe, you know, the nuances and the gray areas are, are not that clear. What do you say to them and why should they read this book? Well, first of all, I would say don't let any of us off the hook. Don't let Israel off the hook uh, when we're uh, when we're expanding settlements and don't let the Palestinian leadership off the hook when it raises one generation after another of its own people to see Israel and the Jewish people as liars, thieves, colonialists, without any indigenous presence in the land. And most of all, don't let yourselves off the hook. You know, I, um, I was recently thinking about uh, why I moved to Israel. And, and by recently, I mean since 1982. You've been <laughs> contemplating that question. Well, the reason that I've been thinking again about, about that is because we've just celebrated our 70th anniversary. And I've been in Israel You and your now. wife have been married that long? <laughs> yeah, close <laughs> to right. it. Close to it. You look so and, young. <laughs> and, uh, we've, uh, and Sarah and I have been in Israel now for l- exactly half the life of the state of Israel. Wow. We're there for 35 years. And and it occurred to me, and this is really in relation to trying to answer your question, Stephanie, which is that, that I moved to Israel, and this is clear to me now, with the growing alienation of American Jews toward Israel, I moved to Israel in part to, so that I would not have the option of American Jewish privilege. American Jewish privilege in relation to the state of Israel is to walk away. Oh, I'm alienated. You're pissing me off. You, you know, I, I'm. You're not behaving the way that I want you to behave. Well, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, the Jews in Israel, whether their parents or grandparents came from Poland or Morocco or Ethiopia or India, they don't have that option of walking away. And so, I wanted to throw my lot in with that part of the Jewish people that doesn't have the privilege of walking away from this amazing story. We're stuck there. I wanted, I wanted to be stuck in that story because I think this is the most extraordinary moment in Jewish history. This is the greatest moment to be a Jew. And I think, honestly, now our duty is all to be stuck in your book, which I'll say this yeah. is a public service announcement. I know of, and, and we get asked this question a lot. I what know book should we no, read? I yeah. know of no better book that both intellectually, emotionally, you know, spiritually captures the, as we call it, the situation. I said to my wife the other night, I said, I have found the book I'm going to hand people about Israel-Palestine. Wow. Well, thank you. In fact, my 11-year-old daughter, I'm going to hand it to her. And it's short, everyone. It's so So short. Come on now. (laughs) And the typeface is large. (laughs) Trim size is pocket-friendly. Yossi Klein-Alevi, the book is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. You can get it in any bookstore, and you can get it in Arabic for free. Thanks so <laughs> on the much. web. Thank you so much <laughs> Thanks, for being Thank here. Really appreciate it. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. 
Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our Gentile of the Week is Ested Herndon. He is a brand new politics reporter at the New York Times. He is a new, a new transplant to New York from Washington, where he worked for the Boston Globe. Right. Thank you. And so you've been in New York like a few weeks now, and this is your this is the time where you have to visit a Jewish podcast. Yeah. That's like you're the, the you know, there was just a just dinner. Acclimating. So welcome to New York. We're here to welcome you. Thank you. I appreciate it. As our Gentile of the Week, it's worth noting you are the son of one or two Pentecostal preachers. Were they both? They are both now. Right. Are Started you, off as one. Now we've got two. Are you still, as as we Jews would say, on the derech? Are you still on the path? Are you still a good, a good Pentecostal Christian? I am. I'm kind of. I mean, I think my parents would say there's room for growth. Um, but, you know, I'm someone who really well, you're val- in New York. It's the right place. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I, I think I'm someone who really values uh, kind of church and church spaces as being ones that uh, have, especially culturally, brought a lot to black communities and um, have been really good moral centering. So I enjoy being in church. The the Whether I go as much as I should, um, I think we would all, the family would How much, would how much have you gone in the last month? <laughs> He hasn't found the church yet, maybe. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, last month I've just literally not lived anywhere. That's, um, <laughs> that's when you need church instead. Right, right. <laughs> that's when you need connection. That's when, that's when you need it the most. So I want, I'm so curious, um, how does your faith and being being someone who does enjoy going to church, how do you think that informs your your reporting? Does it make you a better reporter? Yeah, I oh, well, uh, I think... The qualities that I think it gives me to help being a reporter, I don't want to say are limited to the qualities you only have to have to church. I think that for me, church was um, an intro into, um, you know, things like empathy and things like uh, really understanding other folks' positions and not being judgmental there. And I think that's a real qual- that's a quality reporters should have. I think reporters uh, should uh, try to, um, you know, understand people's position and highlight that. And I think from, especially in my position, uh, church was always a vehicle to uplift the marginalized was really like talked about as a uh, means of justice and advocating uh, for those who could not or or were not being heard. And so for me, like in my reporting, that's something that I always try to make sure I am doing. And so that's, those things for me are always kind of like, I think kind of tied to a church experience. I don't think it's limited to having all, all you know, I think you can get that from other places, too. You once worked as a teenager, in addition to writing a column for your high school newspaper called Inside Osted's Head. Yes, is that what in Osted's Head. In Osted's Head. <laughs> you also worked at a JCC summer camp, right? Yes, and, for and three so, and a half summers. So you knew, you knew little Jews. And and as a as a little black boy and little Jews, was everyone getting along well? Was it like, was what was the, what did you think of the Jews? What did they think of you? By that time, like I had grown up with lots of Jewish folks, so by the t- by the time I was in the uh, the the summer camp counselor, I was you know eight nine bar mitzvahs in, uh, which had... is more than I was at that age. By the way, <laughs> I had been to like two bar mitzvahs my entire childhood. <laughs> so uh, by that time, it wasn't a uh, too big of an intro. I think you know our community was one that was. Uh, diverse in the moment. I mean, we were, um, it was experiencing an influx of African-Americans from the city of Chicago and experiencing an exodus of white people. But I lived uh, in home of Flossmore uh, in the time, it's a south suburb suburb of Chicago. I lived at the time and those two things were overlapping. And so you had a really uh, diverse community and it was really exciting. I mean, there were there, there was a lot of overlap there. I think that, you know, you certainly had your uh, silos of kind of, you know, lunch tables of black kids, white kids, and Jewish kids. But I think that uh, to the degree, like my experience, I always was able to flow through kind of all of those groups and then obviously worked at uh, the Anita Stone JCC. <laughs> one, of, one of the leading JCCs one of the leading in the <laughs> south <laughs> suburbs of this, Chicago. It's an interesting question. You know, I'm not from here. I grew up in Israel. And when I came here, the thought that, you know, Jews were regarded as white struck me as absolutely preposterous because it's not a way that I've ever thought of myself. Yeah. And Still not a way that I really feel fundamentally comfortable with, given, you know, historical experience. Does that track with you at all? I mean, when, when you kind of hang out in a neighborhood that is that is so diverse, do you look at Jews and say like, oh, well, they're just a subcategory of white people? Or do you think like, well, they're kind of a different thing? How does it 
resonate, if at all. Yeah, I, oh, I can be specific to my experience growing up. I mean, certainly there can be um, uh, an understanding of, you know, folks who benefit from privileges and folks who benefit from, uh, uh, you know, systems in which you don't have the ability to, uh, to, pass, as anything to, to pass as anything else. And so um, certainly I think that if you look across the board, um, you know, some folks would view Jewish people as beneficiaries of whiteness. I think that can be separate from, you know, the self-identifying as white or, or um, but does, you know, American society see you as that or does, you know, you see yourself as that? I think those are all bigger and larger questions. I think that may require lots of time, but I think that certainly my experience growing up, I thought of Jews as white. And I think that certainly now I, you know, would view view people, you know, certainly have experienced real marginalization, have certainly experienced real persecution. And that I don't think those two things have to come in conflict right. with each other. I get that. So you are, you know, you've had this this terrific career so far, Boston Globe, now New York Times. If people want more of you, they can find you on Twitter. Yes. Right? What's your handle? At Ested Wesley. At Ested Wesley. Yeah. Ested spelled A-S-T-E-A-D. Yes. Wesley. Uh, but if people want to read like two or three absolutely killer articles by you, just where you've done your your finest work, what are you most proud of? What are the articles that you would put in front of people? Um, at the inauguration last year, or two years ago, was it last year? No. T- time flies when you're having <laughs> I have, fun. I literally have no idea. It's been the longest year of my life. Are. It feels like 10 years ago. Uh, the day of the inauguration, <laughs> I was uh, in Chicago and I did a story about... Um, our, my father's church. And um, I remember eight years ago when Barack Obama was being inaugurated, our church had an inauguration ball in which there was a real sense of progress and a real sense of like ascending to a climax of like American society and like contrasting that feeling with the feelings of real despair that were happening there um, during Trump's inauguration. I think that piece was really, um, I in thought really highlighted some good stuff. Um, I did a story like six months ago about the way that um, fake news bubbles up to the bubbles up to Donald Trump. So it's using certainly not fake news in the context that he uses it, but how literal falsehoods from, you know, Internet sites and Reddit and all of that stuff goes through this conservative media ecosystem and works its way to the Oval Office. I think it's actually really important in understanding the way that uh, the way that we're the universe we're in right now. That was like, and then I used one that I've been thinking about recently about how the threat of MS-13 is exaggerated to, um, so that, you know, Trump and Sessions can live out their uh, anti-immigrant dreams. And that's, I mean, with the animals rhetoric recently, I've been thinking a lot about that one. So those are three that immediately come to mind, but, uh, you know, follow on Twitter and you can just read them all. I said, you have a a new in town question for us. Yes. This panel of Jewish experts. Yes. um, I was, you know, as a three-week-old New York resident, and as a lover of all uh, food, I was saying, give give me the spots. Where should I Where should I eat at? Absolute bagels on 107th. That's a good bagel. Yep. That's probably the best bagel and in the Broadway. city. Okay. I will say you got to stop at Katz's at some point. Maybe like late night on a weekend. Okay. That's like a fun where time. That? That's on Houston, Houston, East Houston. That's like right down in the Lower East Side. Okay, cool. And, and it's when you're like six or seven drinks in. Oh, that's, and then you just want like a you know that's like doable. a pastrami yeah. sandwich. Yeah, um, Cosser's Bialis on the Lower East Side, I think, is an important place to go to. And then if you want to go uptown, um, I think the Russ and Daughters in the Jewish Museum on Fifth Avenue is you get. I was actually in that Russ and Daughters. I got yelled at for talking too loudly by the woman next to me. She leaned over in a classic <laughs> yeah. Jewish grandmother moment. She leaned over and said, "Excuse me, excuse me, could you just lower your voice? You're very loud." <laughs> and you're like, "Do you listen to my podcast?" Yeah. I like I like the Russ and Daughters Cafe downtown because that's sort of like. More, get a downtown vibe there, but okay. definitely go to Russ and Daughters. What else we got? I don't know. That's that's a good place I to start. That, when really, you come yeah, back, I mean, I've got, sums yeah, it all I've up. got the, the good. But this start. is that this is for after you get into a proper apartment out of out of New York. <laughs> I love Times. how we're keeping the stereotype alive. <laughs> like, like have bagels after you get out of the New York Times assisted living center. Box. You will yeah. get to your proper. <laughs> you apartment. need us to get you a place to stay. We can get you that. Like yeah. we want. Yeah, Shut you look hungry. We Thank can, you. Thank you. Esther Arnton, thank you so much for being our Dental of the Week and welcome to New York. Thank you, appreciate it. Hey, 
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Um, some of you want to know how you can help the show. I'm going to give you like the bullet points, the fast bullet points. You can do an iTunes review. Like, like this person whose, whose name is long distance Havara. He gave us five stars and wrote, I've listened since the beginning. I never miss a show. I love that the J crew keeps me up to date on the news of the Jews and connects me to my people while the military has our family living on the other side of the globe in China. We have a community here, but I adore the community Unorthodox provides via the podcast and Facebook group. Thank you. So we're doing it for the military. We're doing it for the soldiers. Absolutely. All right. Be, be Just safe. Just a way to say thanks. Thanks for keeping us safe. So you can you can rate us on iTunes. Um, the other thing you could do is um, you can subscribe to our newsletter at unorthodoxatabletmag.com. You can join our Facebook group. You can write us a letter that we might read on the air at unorthodoxatabletmag.com. You can call us at 914-570-4869. And then the other thing you could do, we're kind of like doing a little soft launch, the, the giving page is up tabletmag.com slash donate if everyone who listens gave a little something anything at all we'd be done with this fun drive within a week so think about it think about just whether even it's five bucks ten bucks eighteen you know a hundred thousand whatever give a little something and thank you so much we're, we're really grateful for your support mazel tovs uh stephanie what you got I have a mazel tov to my friends, Kevin Clark and Emily Glazer. They got married this weekend in L.A. We had Aww. a really fun time there. And it was a beautiful wedding. And we're so, so happy for them. Big mazels. Liel Leibowitz. Uh, to my friend Grant Silverstein from the JCRC. Uh, who That's is, Jewish Community Relations Council who is for those who are not in the know. On, on that magnificent parade and who honored me with marshaldom. Mazel tov galore. Galore. Uh, I have a big, hefty, meaty, um, zaftig mazel tov paragraph. Um, first, to all the people who had conversion stories who called us too late uh, to our listener line, too late to get in, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to Miranda and Dominic and Kara, that guy from Juneau, Alaska, who didn't leave his name, but he's a lapsed Catholic who just wanted to share with us how he wandered into a temple in Juneau, Alaska one day to um, just be in solidarity with Jews in a time of rising anti-Semitism, and then he really liked the service and there was a prayer there that really moved him and then he started reading about Judaism and now he's on his route to conversion and he's like and you guys like, do smoked fish too this <laughs> he is perfect like, for us that's right uh, like, like mazel tov to you pal uh, amazing story um a shout out to Australian listeners Michael Rahm and his mate Tommy Sterling. We have it on good authority that you are the best looking men in Australia, which which is a country filled with handsome men. Um, and finally, a couple uh, marital mazel tovs. We were invited to a wedding this past weekend. Our super listeners, Brian and Alyssa, uh, got married and they invited us. We got the invitation a few months ago. I actually had it on my calendar. I was really hoping to make it. I didn't make it, but I want to say mazel tov to you guys. Uh, I hope it's been a wonderful first week of marriage. And then also our longtime listeners, Leah Paz and Michael Phillips are getting married this Yay, weekend. Yeah. It's, it's about time, guys. We've been talking about your wedding for a while. Um, so, oh, and then finally, just a mazel tov for the, the, the wittiness of our donors. There was a couple that donated to us on, on tabletmag.com slash donate. Which can, everyone should which do. Which everyone should do. Right now. And they leave a little, they, you can leave a note. That's, you know, do you have a note for us? And they wrote, um, mazel tov to unorthodox. Listening to you guys is our second favorite thing to do in bed. Wow. The first is the New York Times crossword. <laughs> That's right. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We often come to you live. Stephanie will be moderating the next installment of the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book discussion series at the Jewish Museum. Join her June 14th. She'll be talking with novelist Rachel Kadish and historian Lisa Moses Leff. If you want to book us for anything at all, Briss's, uh, other Simcas, DJ, Liel DJs now, uh, email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. You can wear unorthodox, hit up bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in swag. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast or on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at S Butnick. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talushkin. It's edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Scott Perlow. Your congregant, friend, and, and spiritual fellow traveler, Nick Fox, is so sorry to see you leave the D.C. area for New York. If you think your rabbi should be selected to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. And we recorded Argo Studios, still wet from the mikvah. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>